Hey, this is the Sunny Day Radio Program. This is Scott Connor, And this is Lyle Wilson. We hope you enjoy the program today. Good afternoon. Uh, hey, Scott. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. How are you? Uh, we're doing good. Uh, we've got a, uh, an exciting guest uh, on the air today uh, waiting on us here. Yeah, I was actually nervous about this one. I uh, I called Gary, Gary Gentry's who we have today. Gary's a songwriter, and, uh, you know, I fiddle in that area a little bit on my own. But uh, I just uh, I can't tell you how special it is to talk to somebody like him. He's uh, someone that's, you know, just changed the music industry uh single-handedly he's uh i'm looking up here to list here he's done everything from uh john anderson johnny cash ray charles david allen co hank jr tim mcgraw he's been around tracy lawrence it's just amazing what this guy's accomplished with his with his writing and uh i i called him at home uh on sunday because i just want to make sure uh, everybody was going to be on the same page, and he is really, really a cool guy. So, Lyle, uh, you going to call him up here? And well, I thought I had him on the hold there, but evidently he's hung up on me. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's uh, let's uh, let's just go ahead and give him a call. So, uh, okay, and uh, it's just uh, he, he's going to he's going to answer here. So just hang on. Well, hello, Gary. This is Lyle Wilson with Radio A1A with uh, Scott Connor, and uh, you're live on the air right now. How you doing, man? My friend Lyle and all my good friends listening to A1A, my favorite old highway. All right. <laughs> well, that's that's, that's good. Uh, <laughs> and he does commercials. How cool is that? <laughs> so very cool. So hey, A1A was that was my Florida highway. I used to bike that thing all on about five different bikes. <laughs> very wow. cool. Very cool. Uh, well, listen, um, we, uh, we, we've got a lot of talk, a lot to talk about in an hour here or so. And, uh, uh, man, I'll tell you what, you have just got some fascinating songs that we want to talk to you about. And, uh, I think the first one that we're going to talk to you about is a, uh, a song you wrote by a, uh, a guy by the name of, uh, uh, well, he performed it, uh, David Allen Cole, uh, called The Ride. Uh, you want to, yeah. Fill, fill us in on that song. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I had uh, it's a while back in the uh, early 80s, in 81, 82, I can't remember, but there's a movie, TV movie called uh, The High Equation of Tribute, A Man and His Friends. And it's got a lot of singing in it. I ain't do the conversation in it. And it's a flashback movie to go back into the 40s and 50s when Hank was on the earth. And uh, the advisors to that movie were Don Helms and Gary Rivers. I wanted to write a tribute to Hank because I've always loved his music since I was four years old. Uh, I can't help it if I, I'm still in love with you. It's one of my favorite all-time Hank songs. And uh, we just, um, after we finished that movie, and you can get it in at the Hank Museum or online or whatever, but when we did that movie, a buddy of mine, Chuck Dixon, J.B. Dutterline, came to me and said, Gary, you got to write a song about Hank. 
I'd already had 1959 and a couple other songs out. And he said, you, you're the one, man. You've been close to every friend Hank had during the time. I mean, Don and Jerry were alive. I played Sammy Pruitt in the movie, one of the Drifting Cowboys. And uh, I said, well, yeah, you're right. And he said, now, I love Lefty, and I did, too. I loved Lefty as well, too. But he said, let's do one called Hank and Lefty. Well, we did it, and his wife was pregnant. She had to go home that night about 10 o'clock. And I said, no, that ain't good enough for Hank. <laughs> and he said, uh yeah, it is. What's a great song, man? Hank and Lefty. Wherever Hank and Lefty are, that's where I want to go. That was the song. Well, I, in those days, thank God I've been clean and sober since 1984, but in those days I was drinking a lot. I was doing a lot of cocaine. I was doing a lot of pills. And everybody knew it. I make no secret of it because in AA meetings, I tell the same story. And, uh, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to get Hank in the room with me. I wanted to feel his spirit. So I cut all, I had a big apartment, and I cut all the lights out, and I lit candles in the living room. And I held a seance. And I said, come, Hank. Come, Hank. Well, he didn't come. <laughs> so I got mad, and I was about ready to bust my guitar on on the wall, and I was cussing him. And I was calling him all kinds of names. I said, Hank, why do you, are you so big? Because you died young? Well, I looked down that long hallway, and Hank Williams was sitting on my couch. He wow. Had no shirt. You're giving me and cold, you're giving, you're giving me cold chills, buddy. <laughs> well, it, it does me still to think of the connection that I felt and feel that I have with Hank Sr. Nobody else. But him, not the boys, uh, not Jet, not, not Hank Jr., and I love him to death. But there was a connection there, and I, I, I saw all like I was called to do that movie. Hank picked me because I met his wife and loved her to death when I was 15 years old. We went to Nashville, and I asked Eddie Albert and, and Ernest Tubb, I was backstage at the opera, and I said, uh, a DJ like you got us on. And we were back at the Ryman, and I said, where does Hank live? And they said, well, you go down Franklin Road here, and you, you pass uh, the old Webb Pierce house down there on the left. I said, okay. So when we left, I told Mom and Grandma, I was with them. I said, well, we got to stop by Hank's house. Oh, you can't do that. You can't stop the car in their driveway. I said, watch <laughs> me. And I pulled right in the driveway and went up and knocked on the door, and the housekeeper's name was Miss Ragland. And I said, ma'am, I'm just the biggest Hank Williams fan that ever lived. And I just want to see his house. Do you mind if I walk around? She said, well, I'll do one better now. Won't you come on in? And don't leave your mama and grandma sitting in the car. Bring them in, too. <laughs> So I did. I motioned them to come on, and they're like, oh, God, we'll get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> so they came in, and she made us feel welcome. And she was showing us around the living room and showed me Hank and Audrey's bedroom with the heart-shaped bed and red bedspread. Just knowing Hank slept there gave me chills. And uh, as I was walking through the house, a lady came out in her white bathrobe and pink towel around her head. 
and said, can I help you, young man? And I said, yes, ma'am. I said, the, uh, the lady of the house, Miss Ragland, is uh, showing us around and letting me see Hank's uh, possessions. And I just, well, come on. <laughs> and she led me on through the house and showed me the 50 by 50 picture. They were getting ready to turn that house into a museum. And, of course, Toad wouldn't let them and the neighbors wouldn't let them. But she showed me that Hank Jr.'s bedroom. He's the same age as I am. Wow. And she showed he was not there. She showed me his collection of muskets against the wall. She showed me the champagne glass that he slept in. You had to walk up steps to get in it. And she took me back and showed me his own private little barber shop. My grandma was gawking at the pots and pans in the kitchen because there was enough there to feed an army. <laughs> it was a party place. And then, and then Audrey took me back, uh, to the swimming pool, and I saw the heart-shaped swimming pool. And I sat down at the bar that was a an aquarium. And you could sit there and drink and watch the fish swim by, just like Hank's song. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. uh, and when it was all over, uh, she let me touch his boots and feel his boots. And I, there was a connection between me and Miss Alder. I loved that woman. Every time I ever heard anything bad, I'd get mad, you know. Sure. And uh, I left, and I said, uh, well, Miss Audrey, I want to thank you for letting me see Mr. Williams' house. And he's like, well, you're welcome, honey. You don't have to call him Mr. The whole world called him Hank. <laughs> <laughs> I never forgot that. And that night, I told Hank, I said, now, Hank, we're going to take a ride, and I want to get Miss Audrey's line in here. Uh, since we're going to sneak up and tell him who you are. Well, let's get that line in there, Miss Alder gave me. Wow. And it all worked out. And the next morning, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I called J.B. Dutterline and said, Chuck, are you awake? No, I'm not. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. Are you drunk? I said, yeah. And I said, I want to sing you something. Well, I sang him something, and his wife's about ready to go in the labor any minute. He woke her up and said, Gator, you you, you got to listen to this, Gary. Would you mind singing that one more time? <laughs> and this is the ride. All right. and, and I couldn't even read my own handwriting. But wow. uh, I told him, I said, well, I threw her song away. I ain't going to let this song. You what? I said, yeah, this is the one right here. This is it. This is it. It's like having a lottery ticket in your hands. With a big fat grin on your face, because all you got to do is go down to the store and cash in. Wow. And well, he said, wow, I knew Hank had given me that song. And I always tell people, and, and Lyle, it's true, Hank's as much a writer on that as I am. Wow. Well, listen. So it was a gift from Hank, and, and I felt chosen and picked, and oh, man, the weird things that happened after that song was written they're just i did the opera uh, uh a taping that good old national music out of the opera and when i got to the word the whole world the line the whole world called me hank the power went off for the first time at opera land complex play. wow and phil ball was the picker on there and he said i don't want to come back well opera land pr people were out there in that day they grabbed a hold of that, and the next thing you know, I had psychics calling me and Billy Sherrill in down to CBS conference table to evaluate what had happened. It made every major newspaper in the country 
and I had my 15 minutes with Hank. <laughs> <laughs> I had my 15 minutes with Hank. And Billy even told uh, the National Enquirer magazine, he said, well, there was a squeak I could not get out of the mix, and I told the boys I believed it was Hank sitting there in a rocking chair because it had the steady drone of a rocking chair, uh, making sure we were doing him right. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, it's, a, it's an incredible song. Um, I, I told you off air that uh, my wife and I uh, run a DJ and karaoke business, and uh, to this day... To Thanks this for day, keeping it well, to, to this day in 2017, we get as much request for that song as we did, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's just, uh, it's, it's, well, it's an incredible written you. song and, uh, and you've done a great job. And, uh, um, I, I think I'm speaking for Hank Williams when I say you've done him proud. Well, uh, there again, he's as much a part of it as I am. He was there and people can call it, uh, a lot of them said, well, Gary, you had, probably had drug hallucinations or you probably, I said, I don't care what you call it. The fact is, Hank Williams was sitting on my couch. Sure. Now explain to me how I found an unfiltered cigarette in the ashtray the other day. I smoked out Marlboro's and the next day I found an unfiltered cigarette and Chuck didn't even smoke. I said, Hank Williams was there. Wow. And I told the National Riders Association that and I told them in New York City when I got a pop award for it. The same thing. And uh, bless their hearts, Barry Gibb and, and Rod Stewart stood up and applauded me. You know, they play your song when you go up and get your award. Sure. And and they played the uh, the ride, and I and I was so humbled because I just love these guys, Barry Gibb and Rod Stewart. I went up and got the award, and I came back, and Rod Stewart said, See any ghosts lately? <laughs> <laughs> they had already heard and read that story. Oh. Wow. And uh, I thought, my God, this is big. This is awful big for a little old hillbilly like me. Wow. But, well, here's what, uh, uh, Gary, here's what we're going to do. If you, if you don't mind hanging on the line with us, uh, we are actually, uh, I, I know you can't hear it, but, uh, we are actually going to play the ride right now, uh, for our listeners. Well, thank you. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk to you about some other stuff. So, uh, will you hang on the line with us all for a few right. minutes? And, uh, God bless all you people out there in A1A land. All right. Well, don't hang up. Don't yeah, hang stay up. Stay right me. there. Okay, Gary. Right, we'll be right back. Stay right there. All right. I was summoned from Montgomery I had my guitar on my back When a stranger stopped beside me In an antique Cadillac He was dressed like 1950 Half drunk and hollow-eyed He said it's a long walk to Nashville Would you like to ride? I sat down in the front seat and them sad old songs coming out of them speakers was solid country gold. Then I noticed the stranger was ghost white pale when he asked me for a light. And I knew there was something strange about this ride. He said, Drifter, can you make folks cry when you play and sing? Have you paid your dues? Can you moan the blues? Can you bend down guitar strings? Boy, can you make folks feel what you feel inside? 
Cause if you're big star bound, let me warn you, it's a long hard ride. Then he cried just south of Nashville, and he turned that car around. He said, this is where you get off, boy, cause I'm going back to Alabama. As I stepped out of that Cadillac, I said, Mr. Many Thanks. He said, you don't have to call me Mr. Mr. The whole world called me Hank. He said, Can you mow on the blues? Can you bend down guitar string? He said, Lord, can you make folks feel what you feel inside? But if you're big star bound, let me warn you, it's a long, hard ride. He said, Drifter, can you make folks tired when you play and sing? Have you paid your dues? Can you mow on the blues? Can you bend down guitar string? He said, Lord, can you make folks But if you're big star bound, let me warn you, it's a long, hard ride. If you're big star bound, let me warn you, it's a long, hard ride. All right. That is uh, David Allen Cole singing The Ride, written by... uh, uh, Gary Gentry, man, what a great song it was. And uh, Gary, man, you've done a fantastic job on that song. Thank you, Lyle. I, I did it a little bit slower than that, but when Billy took David and the band in the studio, he said, rock it, boys, rock it. Gary, you, you know, you and, and I... It, it worked. You and I spoke the other day about it, and uh, tell me again where people get this part of you. How old were you when you moved into Nashville? I was uh, 20, let's see, 28 years old, 1978. And your dad was a, a pastor, is that right? He was a, 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 a Baptist preacher, just like Billy's daddy. Yeah. And uh, where you grew up where? Athens, Tennessee, a little town over between Knoxville and Chattanooga. Cool. East Tennessee. And you moved to Nashville simply to become a, a songwriter full-time, right? Well, when I, no, I had visited several times, but I went off to the Navy. And when I was in Naples, Italy, had it made, I'd, I'd had six years in the Navy, and I was in Naples, Italy, and I cut out this little contest, songwriting contest, called American Song Festival. And this was about 60, 76, 77. And, and I knew I could write songs because we had little bands in the Navy. And I'd write them, and the boys would say, Oh, Gary, you got to go to Nashville, man. You, that's a good song. And I thought, yeah, yeah, y'all say that. Nobody sent me a check lately, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I got out of Navy in 78. And I won a second place in that little contest. And they sent me a little check and a plaque. And I thought, boy, that's it. I'm getting out of here and going to Nashville. I love country music too much not to go to Nashville and try. Yeah. And so I came to Nashville in a rental car, and I lived in it for several weeks. Wow. And Johnny Paycheck 
he wasn't that big then. He didn't have to shove it and all this. We're talking about 78. And he was working the Western room. Well, I got out of my car, uh, sleeping in the car. Uh, I'd run in motels when people run and checked out early, and I'd run in and grab a shower for the maid to catch me. And, uh, Johnny, that's how bad, how tight it was. But I was determined I was going to write songs. Johnny Paycheck was working the Western room. And I went up to Johnny and I said, John, I just wrote a song for you called, uh, Drinking and Driving, coming across uh, Pennsylvania, man. I, I know it's you. It's you. He said, well, I'm, I'm getting ready to cut me a fleet. Won't you put that on tape and bring it down to Billy Sherrill's office? I said, I ain't got a tape player. Man, I'm sleeping in the car. <laughs> he said, well, I'm getting ready to take a break. Do you want to play it to me? I said, yeah. So we walked in the men's restroom, and I took a guitar and propped my foot up on one urinal while Johnny used the other. And I sang drinking and driving in that echo field room. Yeah, plenty. And he said, Yeah. He said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So he went down there and told Billy Sherrill about this kid living in a car, came up and pitched him a song while he was using the restroom. <laughs> and uh, how desperate I was. And Billy said, Sound like a serious SOB to me. Y'all sent him down here. <laughs> and uh, those were the days when. Uh, the great days and there so many great people and then later about a month later or so I got a job uh, working night manager at a liquor store well I met everybody in the music business then at that liquor store but that, that's that's it and and I'd ask him I walked up one day guy came in he looked nice had a new Mercedes you know I said you're in the music business ain't you he said well matter of fact I am I stuck out my hand. Well, I'm Gary Gentry. I'm here to write song. And I'm going to, he said, well, I'm Buddy Killen. Uh, I own Cree International. And he said, I've got two riders out in the car with me right now. Would you like to meet them? I walked out there and met Curly Putman and Ben Peters. Wow. Curly Putman wrote the Green Green Dragon yes. home. And he stopped loving her today. Ben Peters wrote so many love songs. It's scary. And I thought, boy, I've arrived now. <laughs> but, but Johnny cut drinking and driving and he cut a bunch of my songs later on but I was always kind of wild and uh, the record company wouldn't let him put some of them out uh, they wouldn't release them Billy and I wrote one that was kind of it was uh, uh, complimentary of, uh, of the races and all that but no they wouldn't they wouldn't let him do it and then he had lots of trouble toward the end so yeah uh, cocaine killed a lot of careers in the 80s. Yeah. Wow. And, um, when you sat down uh, to write, did you just basically sit down with a, an acoustic guitar and a piece of paper, or how did you go about it? I do it both ways. Uh, if I'm in the truck or in the car or out in the mowing the yard, and an idea won't leave me alone, that's a sign. Yeah. I, I won't have music in my head. It's the idea. Yeah. Billy taught me, and of course, Billy was the greatest songwriting award winner in history. He's BMI's icon winner and had more BMI awards than anybody. Uh, he taught me it's a unique idea that makes the hit, boy. And uh, he was right. 
to me, it, it's always worked, a unique idea. If you look at Bobby Braddock's songs, and, and I love Bobby Dead, you'll see he's got a tricky, a clever way of, of giving you either a double meaning or sneaking up on you. And I love Curly Putnam's songs when I was a kid. Tom Jones had a monster with the green, green grass of home. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, that song snuck up on you. It snuck up on you. You didn't know the end. The guy was sitting in prison and getting ready to go to his death. And uh, that that kind of thing always appealed to me. I grew up in love with the Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And wow. those guys always threw a twist. I thought, all right, how's he going to get me this time? Yeah. And I like that. Love yeah. that. Yeah. So tell tell everybody we're going to be playing uh, the Corvette song in a minute. Tell tell these guys about when the man walked into the liquor store and he was hot. Okay. Lawnmower Ed used to come in the liquor store <laughs> five or six times a day. And he'd, he had his big lawnmower on the trailer, you know, and he'd come in and get him a little 50 bottle of old charge of whiskey. And he'd kill it before it got to his truck. But anyway, he came in this one day, it was about 100, 101. And he walked in, and uh, I said, hey, man, it's hot out there today. You need to lay off this food and get you drink you some water. You really did. I said, it is hot out there. It's hot. It's hotter than a $2 pistol. <laughs> and that sweat all over my I thought, boy, that, is, that conjures up a mental picture. Yeah. That is a mental picture. I know, I, but working at the liquor store, I knew what a $2 pistol was because I bought some of them on Saturday night. Wow. <laughs> A little Saturday night special, a little 32 that gets you killed because it jams and don't work and all that kind of, you know. Yeah. And I had, I, I knew from working at that liquor store, I had a lot of black customers, a lot of white, a lot of brown, hell, all walks of life. And I knew, oh, Ed, Ed gave me something. Well, I hung on that line for about two years. And I was sitting there one day trying to write a song about a car to make you think it was a car. And then up jumps a rabbit, and you find out he's talking about the girl. Yeah. I thought, boy, that line of Ed's, that $2. And I, I always wrote those things down. And I'll tell all you young writers out there, if you get an idea, write it down. Don't think about it and think you'll remember it, because you won't. Write it down. And uh, uh, I had it in my in my folio, in my big stack of dollar store notebooks. And I said, yeah, there it is, that's it. Hotter than a two-day, how descriptive is that? And we describe the uh, the car and and then tell them it's a woman. What's the, uh, what's the longest you remember sitting on an idea like that? I mean, how 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 long has you, have you... Well, that idea, that idea there was probably a couple of years old. That line was probably a couple of years. That's why you have to write them down. Right. And, and uh, it, I just knew it was a great line. And Lord have mercy, George Jones did Hunter's Auto, Speed Sport Auto commercials in, in Nashville, and I've heard that line. It's been on women's T-shirts. I'm hotter than a $2 pistol. <laughs> George get on there on Hunter's Auto. I had some TV. Come on down to Hunter's Auto. We got deals hotter than a $2 pistol. <laughs> 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 and I thought, boy, you're getting a good in there. 
Old Ed's gone now, but I was too bad he ain't alive. I'd, I'd do something for him. Wow. But, uh, yeah, yeah. And so the idea, said Billy, makes a hit. Said anybody can write three verses. Of course, me and Connor were talking about this. So I said, Billy said, it's a huge idea, boy. You squeeze one in there sideways, and the public will just touch a nerve in the public, and they'll look for it. And I went, well, okay, this is this pretty different. Now, William had one one time where he described a car. The motor was hot, but under the hood, he had this, that, and the other. But I wanted to do the trick where you thought he was talking about the car. And, uh, but it, it was, uh, when I played it now for George, uh, I had the, uh, just me on the paper corner. I said, Oh, she was hotter than a two dollar pistol. I didn't do that low part. Yeah. I walked in there to take Billy a bottle of Pouli Per Se wine, $75 bottle. And I took him a bottle in there. I did every time he did one of my songs. And I walked, and George was sitting there. And I looked at George. I said, oh, she would. I knew he'd already cut it. Billy called me and played it for me on the phone. And uh, I said, oh, she was a hotter than her two. He said, no, here's how it is. He stood up and did that. Oh, she was a hundred and a half. Yeah, and when he and when he did that walk up, and I almost dropped that seventy five dollar bottle of wine. <laughs> and I walked in there and gave it to uh, uh, Billy, and I said, "Gosh, that's great, George." And they, Billy told me in front of him, he said, "Kind of reminds me of the races on that little walk up he used to do on that." Yeah, but I knew he'd hook it for. Yeah, that was exactly the same approach, yeah. wasn't it? Wow. That, that, yeah. That's incredible. And, and George, George took a song and, and made it his. He owned it. And now, I love artists that do that. When you, took uh, a song and just owned it. When you sat down and talked with George, I mean, was that, was that kind of a surreal thing? Or by this point in your career, were you kind of used to being around, you know, that oh, level of greatness? Oh, I was used to being around George. I was, see, I met George before I met Billy Sherrill and the Biggies. George used to, he lived a mile from the liquor store that I night managed. <laughs> and George would come in there three times a week. And I've got to tell you a, the funniest story about George. George came in there three times a week, and I said, well, here he comes. Of course, I'd always have a tape ready to hand him whenever he came in, you know. And I hadn't met Billy Sherrill and, and Al Gallico and the executive bunch yet, but, but. George came in there one day and got a bottle. He drove that Lincoln Continental. All his big old Lincoln, and all you could see was his head. It was yellow, big burgundy top. And the Lincoln place where he bought it was right across the street in the liquor store. Well, the girl next door said, Gary, do you know George Jones? I said, yeah, I get to hug him every week. I said, when he come later, I tried try and get him to take one of my songs. And sometimes he'd take me out, and we'd sit in the car, and he'd listen to it in his cassette player, you know. <laughs> and back at the, that far back, that was in the 80s. But she said, you know, I just love his thing. This is funny. People look different on TV than they do in person. And George came in there one day, and he, and he was busy. It was on a Friday. Boy, I had the Baker boys. I had all kinds of people up there. And I said, George, I said, are you going to buy any setups and any mixes? Well, yeah, I'm going to uh, Collins, I gotta get the, the soda and stuff like that. Uh, well, get it over there next door. I said, that little girl told me the other day 
that if George Jones ever comes in this store, I'm going to lock the door and I'm going to tear his clothes off. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I told him, so I got busy at the cash register, and George walked out and I saw him go in there. I thought, good, George come out in a good mood, and I'll take you Miss other cassette I've been holding out here for the last three weeks. So George came out and set up the store, and he walked over and he got his lanking and left, and I was so busy with customers, I couldn't leave the cash register. So after a while, I got a break, and I went over there, and I said, well, Pat, her name was Patricia Pat. I said, well, Pat, how'd it go? She said, what do you mean, how'd it go? I said, I sent George Jones over here. You mean that little old man was George Jones? All right. Well, I'll thank a lot. I feel like an idiot there when a song cut right out the window. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. So, well, here's what we're going to do again, uh, uh, Gary. If you don't mind, uh, we're going to play the Corvette song for you, uh, and uh, we're going to play. Well, hey, I appreciate it, Lyle. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, man. And I'll tell you what, this is uh, here again. It's uh, another one of those uh, greatest songs that I think that's ever been written, and. Uh, we're going oh, to play it. Me and Scott will talk to you off air for a couple minutes, and then uh, we got a couple more that we're going to talk to you about. So, uh, um, All right. Written by Gary Gentry. Uh, when was this written, Gary? I think that was 1984. 1984. 84, 85. I went out and bought a vet after it was over, and I bought an 84 vet. The first one, they didn't make them in 83. Wow. And they made them in 84. And they gave, oh, it was at the same time, it was 84. Same time they opened the Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I got so mad at George. Do you know they gave him a Corvette for coming up there and doing the grand opening of that of that Corvette Museum? <laughs> All because of your song. Nothing. I didn't get a go jump the lake note or nothing. Man. <laughs> I told you that I'm mad at him. <laughs> All right. Well, here it is. Um, George, right. George Jones singing the Corvette song written by... Uh, uh, Gary here, and uh, we're going to play for you right now. Thank you, Doc. I stopped off at the Quicksack for some beer and cigarettes. The old man took my money as he stirred at my Corvette. He said I had one just like her son in 1963. Hell, a man down at the bank her from me Oh, she was hotter than a two-dollar pistol She was the fastest thing around Long and mean, every young man's dream She turned every head in town She was built and fond to handle son I'm glad that you dropped in She reminds me of the one I loved back then Handed him my keys and said, here, take her for a spin. The old man scratched his head and then he looked at me and grinned. He said, son, you just don't understand. It ain't the car I want. It's the brunette in your bed that turns me on. I had one that was hotter than a two-dollar pistol. She was the fastest thing around. Long and lean, every young man's dream She 
turned every head in town. She was built and fun to handle some. I'm glad that you dropped in. She reminds me of the one I loved back then. Lord, she was hotter than a two-dollar pistol. She was the fastest thing around. Long and lean, every young man's dream. She turned every head in town. She was built and fun to handle, son. I'm glad that you dropped in. She reminds me of the one I loved back then. She reminds me of the one I loved back then. All right, that is the Corvette song. <laughs> wow, that's a great song, Gary. Um, Gary, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, I could sit here and listen to your stories all day long. Well, I've been blessed, Lyle, to be around the greatest songwriters in the history of country music. And I wish these young people, these young writers, composers, and novices to the biz had had the opportunity that, that I have. And it's like I told you earlier, we were so busy working then, I didn't realize I was in the middle of legends like Billy Sherrill, Narl Wilson, uh, Carmel Taylor. I was just so happy to be with them as I had to work every day and show them that I could write, you know. Sure. They kept your nose to the grindstone. Gary, what do you uh, think? Uh, but one of the mo- I'm sorry. Huh? When you and I were talking the other day, what what do you think the reason is I mean, your songs are going to be around for forever. I mean, another hundred years, they're still going to be listening to your music. What do you, what's, what's happened to the industry where we don't have classic music any longer? I mean, everything that's written today, it'll go to number one. And then the next week, you can't even remember what song was, you know, and there's no lasting sustainability with it. What, what, what's happened? Is it the production? Is it the, the they, have, they have turned it into young people's music, and I call it hospital food. <laughs> we had we got soul food back in the day. We had great writers like Max D. Barnes, Troy Seals, Carmel Taylor, all these great writers who who actually lived hard times and and knew about. I know I can tell you firsthand about three of the DUIs I had. Uh, uh, we, we lived, we worked, and we played hard, and today's, uh, market is geared for the young people. It's, uh, rap music and whatever's happening right now. And the ditties come and they go, but you take like, like Max D. Barnes, Chiseled in Stone, some of those great songs he wrote. And one day, what happened? You're talking about what happened to him. Well, Max explained it to me. I met him out in front of Irving Almo Music. Billy Sherrill had retired. And I, and Gallico sold to Coca-Cola, sold his publishing company to Coca-Cola. Buddy Killen was selling Tree International to Sony for $50 million. And, uh, it was disappearing. And I said, Max, what's going on? Can you get me a right deal here? He said, yeah, I can, based on your accomplishments. He, he said, but Gary, he said, I made a great living writing about dead people. You can't do that anymore. The depression police will call your radio station and threaten to boycott the sponsors. And they, the, the depression police, he said, somebody gave special interest groups a voice. 
that we've never had before. He said, I've heard your drinking song. You can write a great drinking song, but not today, you can't. And and all of a sudden, now they'll play the old classic drinking song, uh, like Merle. They'll think I'll just sit here and drink. And all those great songs are the classics, but they don't let any new ones slip in. And they geared it toward huge crowds. Uh, and also, the record company has quit taking risks. Uh, now, if you want to be a star in today's, you know, packed to concert halls and, and amphitheater world, you have to come to town with a lot of money. That's not saying that's true about writers, but you, you, you have to write what they want, and you don't hear the kind of songs we used to write, and today's kids will hear them and say, boy, I love that song. Come find out the song's 40 years old, and they don't know it. Sure. And they say, I love that. Uh, Nashville wants to keep them from that and steer them to the politically correct music of today. And Max told me all this was coming, and... uh well, as we stood out there, he said, all right. He said, I got an old boy in here that'll listen to your songs and all that. Do you want to? And I said, Max, I love you to death, but I don't have $5,000 a month house payments, and I don't have boys going to college. I'm out of here. And I was for a long time, for, for many years. Uh, it just changed drastically, uh, suddenly. And, and ever, the country music world, I learned to write. Some of the greatest writing lessons I ever got came from a man who did not read or write. Wow. Uh, and I did not know that for three years. He hid it from me. Who was this? Uh, Carmel Taylor wrote the Grand Tour. Oh. Another smash. Another big hit. Step right up. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, Carmel, one day, he'd say, sing that line over there. Sing that line. Let's let's write this line here. And I'd sing it over. Well, he went to the restroom, and uh, his girlfriend came by, and, and I said, surely he is wearing me out, re-singing that line over there. She said, he can't read and write. Don't you know that by now? Oh, wow. I said, no, I didn't. And then I rehearsed and went back in my memory and remembered the times I'd look at a menu. And he would, too, in a restaurant. He'd say, Gary, what do you have? Well, I think I'll have a hamburger steak. And I'll have that. You know that sounds good. I'll have the same thing. <laughs> oh, wow. And Carmel drank a lot, so he'd always get me to drive him somewhere. And I thought that was why. He couldn't read the signs. Huh. And had a big deal Lincoln Continental all the time. Had a horse farm down in Alabama. Beautiful man, beautiful man. Made the clearest, made songwriting so simple. Tore it down, made it little. And he, I love that man. He was making the best of a bad situation, wasn't he? Yes, sir, he was. What happened was, when he and Billy Sherrill were kids, they had a band. Well, Billy was a little bitty fella, and Carmel was about six foot four. And if anybody ever messed with Billy Sherrill, Carmel just beat the daylights out of it. And Billy remembered that when Billy became Mr. Nashville. And, uh, Carmel came to town to write songs and he did a bunch of it. He's had songs set with Tom Jones. He's had George Jones. Of course, the grand tour is 
the Grand Tour Gardens is where George is buried. Sure. And, uh, I mean, Carmel was a, a, a trip. And he'd get mad. He'd get drunk. <laughs> I said, well, I came down to right. He said, uh, what time are you coming? I said, well, you get up at the crack of noon, don't you? <laughs> I got down there about noon. He'd sit there in his old boxer shorts on the side of the bed beating on that Gibson, and I had my little ovation, and we'd sit there and write. But we were, and some of it was no good, and I wouldn't play it for my dog. <laughs> some of it was great. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. You write every day, and some of it's going to stick. Some of it, most of it won't. Yeah. And uh, I, I encourage these young people and novices to be to write something down every day. Harlan Howard did. He said, well, boys, I've got it down to a science. Out of every 50 songs I write, I get a monster. <laughs> well, you know what? If you have to, it, the way Harlan and all the money he made, it, it was worth it writing every one of those 49 throwaway songs yeah. to get that monster because he wrote some biggies. Back then, when you guys did these... Uh Demos. How did you guys go about doing your demos? Did you guys uh, do it the way we do it now, or do you, did you do it uh, differently? I didn't do demos. <laughs> they called me in the office. I sat in front of John Anderson and sang him that song. I sat in front of George Jones and do my best, George Jones, <laughs> right in front of him. And he'd either laugh and he'd say, well, that sucks. Or he'd say, I like that. <laughs> He's that brutally honest. And uh, Billy said, y'all are coming in this afternoon. Y'all got anything? And then Billy laughed. No, Gary Dick will be here. You'll be the first one in line that get to play George's song. <laughs> and that's why we did it then. We didn't do demos. Billy, Billy didn't believe in them because they, they uh, rubbed off on him and might sway his way of producing the record. Yeah. He wanted his song. Sure, get it the his way. Now, tell us, tell us, the, tell us the back story of 1959. I was I had just gone to writing for Carmel Taylor. I had I left Merle Kilgore. He had he was running a publishing company called Play Music, and I just left him to join Carmel Taylor, who I met at the liquor store. And that afternoon, he was sitting around lazy, and I had to go to work at three o'clock. I worked from three to eleven every day when that night minute. So I was sitting there, and man, in the driveway next door to Carmel's little old office. A pink 1959 Cadillac convertible rolled in, and we all ran out to look at it. It was just gorgeous. I called it the Elvis Mobile, <laughs> and we were talking about the back seat and what all had probably happened in it, and we were talking <laughs> about the car itself. And that night, I went home and I closed the liquor store at 11 o'clock. And I went home. I lived by myself. I had a little apartment up there. And I was, I was sitting in the, uh, in the bathtub, in the hot bathtub with a bubble bath. And I had a bottle of Heaven Hill. I couldn't afford, uh, Jack Daniels yet. So I had a bottle of Heaven Hill sitting there. And I poured me a big glass and I thought, Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> This is your lucky day. I'm getting ready to get you a smash about that 1950 Cadillac. Well, I couldn't write the Cadillac song, and I thought, wait a minute. It's not the 59 Cadillac that got our attention. It's that wonderful, beautiful, magical era of the 1950s 
we were all wrapped in. And that car was just the vehicle that took us there. And I thought, man, let's see, cigarettes were recorded then. I remember because I'd pull a handle and get that a pack of cool, unfiltered menthol. And I remembered that the girls falling and passing out in front of Elvis and the great songs he had, oh, 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 I'm all shook up. <laughs> and all those great teddy bear and all those great songs. Yeah. And uh I thought, yeah, this is it. I'll just I'll just use that put that car in front of me. And that night I rode it. And uh I took it in the next day and Carmel was sitting there and I said, Carmel, I I I think I've written here. And he heard it and he said, Well what are you gonna call it? I said, just nineteen fifty nine. He said, You know what? There ain't never been a title. A date has never been a title. And it hadn't been. Then then later years later came nineteen eighty two and this other thing, but he said Let's go play that to Narl. Narl Wilson produced John Anderson. He produced uh, uh, Margo Smith. And, oh, he produced a bunch of them. And he took me over there, and I sat down in front of Narl. He said, Gary, sang that song, Narl. And, uh, and I did. And, and Narl said, well, I, I, I like it. He said, who you get that line for? I said, Gordon Lightfoot. Well... I don't know if I'll get Gordon Lightfoot. He tried to take one of mine one time. Gordon was in rehab. I don't know what, 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 but I've got a young boy that I just signed. I bought his contract for $100,000. Al did from, uh, Earl Richards, his name John Anderson. He had a little old song called Swoop Down Sweet Jesus and, and several other songs and said, I'd like to put it on him. I thought, well, that's a long way from Gordon Lightfoot, but I'll take it. <laughs> and I went into the studio, Columbia B. Two days later, Carmel called me and said, come down here and go hear John do it. I said, no, it's going to put strings on it. <laughs> that's a big deal those days. You know. Yeah. Nashville strings, He's going right? to put strings on it. Yeah. Uh, Nashville yeah. strings, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I went down there. John went in that booth. He took... Uh, Two big swigs from a bottle of Jack Daniels that he bought for me the night before. And he halted down on that microphone and two takes it and done. Hmm. That boy could sing. That boy was country. Boy, I love his singing. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I, I'm happy. He said, are you happy with that? I said, oh, Lord, yeah, man. That, yeah, I am. Those strings just make that song. He said, well, you'll make a lot of money on that part because that's FM all the way. And FM will just play that thing to death. Wow. And, and he was right. So he when you guys, uh, when you got that done, um, when it got released, how, how long did it take to hit? Okay. Here's the funny thing on that song. John Cook, 1959, and in there he had uh, Girls End of the Bar and several other songs. Hey, yeah. Gary. He cut it that day. I figured I could go ahead and order the new Cadillac, see? Hey, Gary. No, it don't work that way. It laid in the can for three years. John Anderson did not want to release it. Wow. Andy Wickham came from England. He was Warner Brothers' boy. He owned Warner Brothers. He came over, and John said, well, I'm ready to do my new album yet. He said, you're not going to do a new album until you release 1959. That's the best song in your album, boy. 
Johnson, Andy Wickham. It was his decision three years after the day John Rapp. He made that song happen. And now John's glad. Oh, yeah. I always knew it had, it was not, I went for nostalgia. Yeah. And I went for the throat to try and bring that 59 into everybody's mind. And he did. And John said he gets more of a full sport now than he did back then at his acoustic shows and some of his shows. And the Statler brothers, the Statler brothers had had the class of 57 before this song, correct? Is that right? I don't know. I know it was a great song. I loved it. Where the boy ended up selling the used car and everybody went their way. The class of 57 had his dreams. Yeah. And I don't know when that was released. This was 1981 when John did it. Okay. And I was in Paris, France and got a telegram from Elaine Nash, who was my publicist, and she said, congratulations. 1959 is smoking up the chart. <laughs> I was over there with Jimmy Rogers anyway. That's awesome. And, uh, and, and, uh, I said, wow, that is great. I mean, I didn't even know they were putting it out. I thought it was dead. I've got about 10 songs and they've been released. They're cut on paycheck and Jones and some of these things that, that don't fit today's mold. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Hey, Gary, hold on just a minute. Man, we gotta take a short break, okay? Just, uh, how long we need? How long we need? Oh, I don't know. We're, what we're going to do, Gary, is uh, um, we are telling here that we're going to make this a two-part show. And uh, uh, it's going to be uh, – you remember the old cliffhangers back in the days where they'd uh, take you right up to the end of the show and then uh, make you hang on till next week to see the rest of it? I think. Oh, I- yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll tell them young songwriters if they want to listen, they better tell you tune in to part two. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly what we're going to do. So I'm going to put you on hold and, for a second. Uh, and by golly, Grandma and all of them will tell them kids to get by the radio. Old boy, you getting ready to get a songwriting lesson. <laughs> well, listen, we're going to put you on hold for a second. Scott and I is going to close out this show for this program. We're going to come back, and then we're going to go ahead and uh, keep you on the air with us here, off the air, actually. All right, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I've got a dental appointment i got to make. Okay. Uh, can we do part two, like, tomorrow? We could we could do we could do part. I was gonna say we could do part two next week if you want to, but you, you at wanna, this time you want to do it next week. I'm gonna put you on my speed dial. Not where I'll know what you calling, and we'll do part two. All yes, right. sir. And uh, uh, you good with it? Uh, you good with doing part two next week at noon, uh, just like we did today? Or I'd love, uh, whatever, whatever. Or do you want to do it live next week? Sure. I I, I think it's, I think we're getting more. I, yeah. I, I love the live part of it. And maybe next so. week he'll let me have my own microphone. That would be cool. So. <laughs> All right, have Scott, Scott holler at me, and, yeah. and uh, we'll do we'll do whatever we do. Uh, yeah, we can give him a cliffhanger. You boys want to learn something about songwriting and girls? Tune in next week. All right. <laughs> well, listen, buddy, we appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for being with us. I'm going to have you hang on the air for just a second here, and uh, then uh, Scott and I'll talk to you off the air. Okay. Let me tell them we're going to do a part two, and and uh, if if they listen to Lyle and A one A, and we'll give them some songwriting lessons, there some real ones. There we go. All right, buddy. Well, listen, uh, you hang on the line one second, okay? All right. All right, Scott. Uh, <laughs> you're right, man. He is a talker, ain't yeah. he? So yeah. uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, uh, we're going to close out this show, and uh, we'll be back next Tuesday at noon. So if you want to hear part two, make sure you're back here next Tuesday uh, for part two. And uh, here again, uh, it'll be uh, <laughs> Gary Gentry, and he's uh, he's live, man. He's uh, un- unplugged. So uh, um, it, 
what a great storyteller. It's been a long time since I've heard a storyteller like well, that. I, uh, I actually sat here for a few minutes with tears in my eyes listening to this man talk. He, uh, I, I have an awful lot of respect for him. So, so, wow. Well, listen, we're going to close out the shows, guys, and uh, uh, we'll see you back here next Tuesday on sunny days uh, starting at noon Eastern time here on uh, Radio A1A.